We think that the mosquitoes can detect this surface by monitoring fluctuations in their own flow that they're generating themselves. But it would be nice to prove that concept on some sort of flying device. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today, in episode 78 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Richard Bomfrey from the University of London's Royal Veterinary College about how mosquitoes can detect surfaces using the airflow caused by the movement of their own wings and the drones he developed to mimic them, so to avoid crashing into walls or other surfaces when deployed in potentially dangerous missions. Here's Richard Bomfrey. Hi, I'm Richard Bomfrey. I'm a professor of comparative biomechanics at the Royal Veterinary College, and I work on the biomechanics of animal flight, whether that's insects or birds. We do a lot of work with birds of prey, and we do a lot of work with insects. Insects are of fundamental interest to me because it's like since I was a kid, I've looked in the garden and noticed that no two insect species look alike at all. You know, in the same way that Darwin's finches were inspiring to Darwin, it's nice to be able to look at a group of animals and try to pin down exactly what it is which has caused this great radiation into endless forms. And when I was uh, young, I grew up in, in Grantham in Lincolnshire, which is famous for two people. It's the birthplace of Margaret Thatcher, and it's also the birthplace of Sir Isaac Newton. In fact, he went to my old school. And from there, I read biological sciences at Exeter University. And for my third year research project, I got really fascinated in flight. I was under the tutelage of Robin Wooten, who was a paleobiologist and made his name looking at fossil insects and particularly inspired in me an interest in the dragonflies. Now, the dragonflies almost unchanged, certainly in their wing structure, since the first insects took to the skies about 350 million years ago. And so when I got to the end of that project, unfortunately, he was retiring and I wanted to carry on doing this kind of thing. So he recommended to me a PhD position in the zoology department at Oxford University. And that was with Professor Adrian Thomas. And he had been working on similar problems from birds' tails to insect flight. And he had an opening for a PhD position. And I thought, well, that sounds fun. If I don't like it, I can always stop. And that's pretty much been my philosophy on my whole career. But I'm, I'm still enjoying it, so I haven't stopped. <laughs> Nature provides scientists the opportunity to learn from millennia of evolutionary trial and error experiments. And in episode 61 of Parsing Science, we introduce listeners to Saptarshi Das from Penn State University, who engineered ultra-thin microphones inspired by barn owls' preternatural ability to localize where sounds are coming from. So we started out our conversation with Richard by asking him to describe what he and his team hope to learn from mosquitoes. The motivation for the study was always a sensory project. So we needed to know the aerodynamics because we had a hunch based on a, a suggestion in a paper quite some time ago now that they might be using the flow field to sense surfaces even in the dark. And so that's what this latest paper is about. If you're flying in the dark at light levels below which the compound eye starts to function, how do you know that you're not going to crash into something? Or how do you land very, very gently on a surface? And we know that mosquitoes do land gently on surfaces, even in the dark. And there's good reason for that, isn't there? Because if you feel a mosquito land on you quite heavily, <laughs> then it does not end well for the mosquito. 
And similarly, females are laying their eggs over water quite frequently, and they do a, a dipping behavior where they go close to the water surface, but they don't actually touch the water surface because that could spell the end. So we thought mosquitoes are surrounded in mechanosensors. So these are not vision sensors. These are hairs, potentially, or the antennae, which respond to the tiniest angular deflections you can imagine. And we thought, well, when a helicopter flies, that spinning disc generates a downwash, which is why people hold on to their hats when they're getting into helicopters. We can all visualize that big jet coming down off the rotor blades. And we know also that helicopter pilots are very sensitive to the fact that when they're flying close to the ground, it's very difficult. It's one of the harder helicopter tasks taking off and landing because as it's throwing out this downward jet, it creates a higher pressure region and it's a bit like a bubble or a mound and the helicopter wants to slide off it. So holding position in a helicopter very close to the ground actually requires quite a lot of concentration. So pilots and the scientific community around the sort of aerodynamics literature are very familiar with the concept of ground effect. But what was new was that we were looking for sensors on the mosquito that they could use to monitor that in these dark situations. So we knew where to look because the antennae of mosquitoes are ridiculously sensitive. And that's because many insects have at at the base of their antennae, the receptive cells, which detect deflections of the antenna shaft away from its base position. So our question was very simple. Does that move in a way that is detectable to mosquitoes when they're flying? Richard and his colleagues published a study in 2017 that detailed the physics of how mosquitoes are able to take flight despite their having short wings capable of making only very shallow rotations during each wing beat cycle. Ryan and I were curious to hear more about the unique features that permit mosquitoes to fly. If you have a very, very shallow stroke amplitude like mosquitoes, then actually the wingtip is only traveling about two chord lengths, which is the distance from your leading to trailing edge, before it has to slow down, stop, flip over, and travel back in the other direction. So it's always operating in its own downwash, and it never really gets up to the efficient heights that the wing would be capable of if it were capable of rotating forever like a helicopter or translating forever like an aircraft. So we knew that mosquitoes from previous research that were just completely off the scale of this low wing stroke amplitude. So if you think about a butterfly, we've all seen butterflies in flight and they tend to clap their wings together above their thorax and then again beneath their thorax. So each wing is describing about 180 degrees and together they describe a circle. And again, that's pretty amenable to the application of helicopter theory. But the previous record holder for a shallow wing stroke amplitude was uh, the honeybee, which was about only 90 degrees. So they're not clapping top and bottom. They're just traveling 90 degrees, flipping over and coming back again. And the very reasonable and, and logical and almost certainly correct suggestion of why that might be is because it leaves them some some wriggle room. So when they're carrying heavy loads, pollen or nectar back to the hive, they can increase that amplitude and they can generate more lift over the wing stroke cycle to account for lifting these these heavy weights. But it's not a particularly efficient way of doing it. So bees have a sort of brute force way of flying from A to B, and it's not the super efficiency that engineers often expect uh, from the, the biological world. 
And then we have the curious case of these mosquitoes and their wing stroke amplitude is less than half the B. So they flap through about 44 degrees in our experiments, which is an absolutely tiny shallow angle through which to flap. And instantly it raises huge questions about how they're generating enough lift to support their body weight. And the answer to it is really that they're generating more lift during the rotational phases of their wing stroke cycle. So let's think of it in four phases. You can pitch your wing to the right angle at the beginning, and then you do a sweep around that arc, and then you flip it over. So that's another rotational phase. And then you do another sweep, and then you're back to the beginning. So you have to flip it over again to sweep through. And I hope you're uh, working this through with your own arm. I know I am. (laughs) You can't talk about insect flight without doing the insect flight dance at least once. So that's what they're doing. And previously, there'd been some discussion about how much lift might be generated or at least not lost during the very slow moving bits at the ends of the stroke, where they shouldn't be generating much lift according to classical aerodynamic theory. But what we found is that the mosquitoes are really capitalizing on these rotational phases getting a big boost of lift at that stage, which compensates for the fact that they're not sweeping their wings very far on each stroke of their wing beat cycle. Most adult mosquitoes are just three to six millimeters in length and weigh only five milligrams. So any changes to the patterns of how the air is flowing around the mosquito in flight are quite small. Doug and I looped back to ask Richard to tell us more about how those receptor cells at the tip of their antennae function to monitor these fluctuations. So we already knew where to look for suitable sensors in these Culex mosquitoes. In particular, they have an organ at the base of the antennae called the Johnston's organs. And these are sensitive to the most ridiculously small deflections in the antenna that you can imagine. So our electrophysiologists on the team, sensory physiologists, devised an apparatus to stimulate the Johnston's organ by wobbling the antennae with pulses of air down to very small thresholds of particle motion at a variety of frequencies. And what they discovered was that the Johnston's organ was sensitive mostly to a frequency which only comes into play when you mix the frequencies of the males and the females in flight. And the females are bigger and they have a a deeper tone to them because the wings are longer, they fly at a lower frequency. And the males, conversely, are smaller and they fly at a higher frequency. And if you look at the difference in those frequencies, you find a distortion product frequency, which is what the Johnston's organs are most sensitive to. So this is fundamentally important for how mosquitoes find each other during coupling events in swarms. And what we found was that there were fluctuations in the flow which occur at the wingbeat frequency, which get greater the closer you get to a surface. And moreover, one of the areas where those changes are greatest so you would get your your biggest signal to noise ratio um, from your sensor was around the antennae. That, that was quite a surprise for us because the jet goes downwards and you might think that the biggest changes would be around the legs area, somewhere beneath the thorax and abdomen. But curiously enough, uh, you also get these very large changes um, right over the head. And coincidentally, it may be, but that's exactly where these super sensitive antennae reside. To assess changes in airflow around mosquitoes due to their flapping wings, Richard and his colleagues first had to film their movements in flight. 
They then used that information to create a computational model, both of mosquitoes in free flight, as well as in proximity to walls or the ground, as he explains next. As with any model, as with any simulation, it follows the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. So we went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that we were not putting garbage in by filming mosquitoes flying in the dark. So we had to use infrared illumination, which they can't see. We did that with eight high-speed cameras, all synchronized, and they were running at 10,000 frames a second because the mosquitoes, as well as having a shallow amplitude, also have very, very high wingbeat frequencies. These were up seven, almost 800 hertz. So with these multiple views, we could do a process called voxel carving, or sometimes known as convex hull reconstruction. And the way that works, it it sounds complicated. Uh, Actually, it's relatively straightforward, really. If you looked at a ball from some distance with one eye, you can't tell whether it's a small ball that's close to your eye or a very large ball far away. So your brain can only tell you that it fits within a cone which goes from your eye to the ends of the universe. Okay. However, if you looked from another direction as well, you would have the same fundamental issue that you didn't know if it was a small ball close to you or a big ball far away, but those cones must intersect. And so if you carve away all the things which are outside of your cone, in our case it was white pixels because the mosquito was flying against a bright background, you can start to chip away. And the more cameras you add, the more you're chipping away until eventually all you're left with is the beautiful three-dimensional geometry of whatever happens to be in the field of view, in our case, mosquitoes. And because we could do that 10,000 times a second, we got about 20 images of the wings throughout the wing stroke cycle. And we could see how they were twisting and how they were bending And we feed that geometry into the computational fluid dynamics model to work out the forces that the mosquitoes were generating as they were flying along. As Doug and I had only a passing knowledge of fluid dynamics, prior to our conversation with Richard, we asked him to explain just how he goes about developing computational models to understand and predict the actions of moving fluids. Actually, for most of my career, I've been measuring the flow around insects uh, rather than being forced down the simulation road. But measuring the flow around insects is very challenging, in part because they're very small and in part because they're very fast. So what we do when we measure the flow is to seed the air that they're flying in with tiny particles of smoke or actually it's um, droplets of olive oil. This is equivalent to uh, theatre smoke or nightclub smoke. And then if you film from the side and illuminate those particles with a laser, you can see where they all are. And if that laser is pulsing with a known time interval, you can see how far those particles move in a known time, which gives you a velocity vector. And then you can draw a map, just like a weather map, with uh, the wind direction and velocity of the airflows generated by insects. And it's something that we've done around mosquitoes as well. But mainly we did it to validate a simulation that we used instead. We used computational fluid dynamics, or CFD, which is a very widely used method these days. Measurements are hard, and measurements 
in our case, would be relying on animal behavior and hoping that they did the same thing every time. And anyone who's ever worked with animals will know that animals never do the same thing each time. And if you then look at another animal, that's definitely doing something different again. And that animal will do something different each time as well. So it's much more uh, simple to take a collection of measurements. And then if you want to do any sort of parametric study that we did, which was to look at how the flow field would change at different altitudes, you can use a simulation instead. So what CFD does is it takes a geometry, a shape of something, let's say it's a a racing car, and put this into some modeling software. And you say, if I were to blow air across this car, or if this car were to be traveling at 200 miles an hour, where would it go? And from where it goes, you can infer the forces on the car. So whether that's lift or downforce, which is what racing cars worry about most, or drag, which is the other thing they worry about a lot. You can identify that just by, I say just by, but by solving a set of equations, in our case, at looking at slow speeds and, and small scales by solving a bunch of equations called the Navier-Stokes equations. All they are at their heart is one of Newton's laws of motion, which is the the force equals mass times acceleration one. But instead of doing it for a child on a swing or two snooker balls colliding or anything like that, you're solving it for tiny parcels of air. So each one of them uh, has a velocity. And if that changes, then there's an acceleration there. You know what its mass is. So you must know what the force was. With a precise model of how air flows around mosquitoes in flight, Richard and his team engineered sensors for a quadcopter drone so that it could mimic these biological systems. You can watch a video of their quadcopter in flight on parsingscience.org E78. And there, you'll notice the small tubes extending from its base. But how do these sensors mimic mosquitoes? We'll hear after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Opmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com products. Now back to passing science. Here again is Richard Bumphrey. So what you need to do is um, identify the places where there is going to be some change in the pressure. And on our prototype, we had precision engineered carbon fibre tubes providing a probe for the differential pressure sensor which sat in the the heart of the quadcopter out to an area of the flow which we knew was changing the most. So we'd used the particle image velocimetry technique to identify the areas with the biggest change in the flow conditions, the pressure conditions, as they approached surfaces. That was an optimised one. But actually, the very first trial we did, uh, which was on this larger quadcopter, it's one and a half kilograms, is we just stuck it onto the outside of what was there. And we hadn't done any of the optimization of where would be best to put it. Uh, we just put it on and it worked very well. So we think that this will work even attached to the door of a helicopter so it does need access to the outside i was going to say it would work if it was sitting in your pocket it might even work if it was sitting in your pocket in the aircraft but other than that really for optimized purposes you would want it uh, routing to the areas with biggest change but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case if you're content to work suboptimally 
Finally, with both a mathematical model that could explain how to fly close to surfaces without impacting them, as well as sensors to mimic this process, Richard and his colleagues' next step was to transfer the concept of aerodynamic imaging to a miniature quadcopter. Next up, he tells us how they went about developing a system for their drone to perceive and avoid obstacles using the same mechanisms they discovered in mosquitoes. So we had a plan now. We said, we think that the mosquitoes can detect this surface by monitoring fluctuations in their own flow that they're generating themselves. But it would be nice to prove that concept on some sort of flying device. So we uh, got one of these palm-sized quadcopters. It's a toy, really, (laughs) but it's one of those toys which has been uh, specifically designed with developers in mind and academics in mind. You can get access to the source code and you can modify it or hack it to your to your heart's content. So what we did was put on some sensors which would monitor changes in the flow field and tell a circuit board which we'd added um, using a sort of some expansion capability that these devices have to illuminate some lights if it thought it was near a surface. And we didn't use mosquito antennae although potentially you could. It's a bit of a Frankenstein cyborg solution, but uh, potentially that would work. We thought, let's take a simpler option. There are many pressure sensors that you can purchase, which are very small and very lightweight and uh, very well suited to be carried on, on these little flying machines. So we got an array of those. We knitted them together with some tubes, which took the readings of the air pressure right in the places where we knew the flow would change most. And we sent that to the flight controller, and lo and behold, we could uh, detect obstacles in a bio-inspired fashion. I like this kind of bio-inspiration because what you'll find in in the world of biomechanics and biomimetics is that there's quite a lot of post-hoc justification of (laughs) things which suddenly you think, well, actually, that looks a little bit like a, and then insert animal here. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna point to any. That's for sure. But this one was identifying a known capability with an unknown explanation, an unknown mechanism in a flying animal, and this one of particular economic importance and uh, animal and and human health importance, and abstract the mechanism by which it's doing that task, and then not blindly mimic it. So we didn't create an artificial antenna. But we took the concept and we thought, well, actually, we can do this more quickly, more simply and more robustly using some off the shelf components, which are so abundant there. They're almost free. And then we have a a novel device uh, which can detect obstacles. By measuring the airflow velocities around the quadcopter, Richard and his team identified where to place the probes for maximum sensitivity. Ryan and I were curious about how far away their quadcopter could be from objects and still detect these changes in its own downwash. The conservative estimate of how high we think that mosquitoes can detect the floor is about 10 or 12 wing spans, so about 20 wing lengths. And this is way in excess of what airline pilots will think of as when ground effect kicks in just before you're about to touch the runway. Ground effect is known to give better lift and drag characteristics on the aircraft, which is very helpful when you're coming into land. Uh, but it only really kicks in within one wingspan. And so this is way in excess of that, 10 times better than that. So we should be able to do ground-following tasks at about that, depending on the type of sensor you're using. 
because it's a trade-off. Well, it's not a trade-off, it's sort of additive, really. You have your sensory cue, but you still need a sensor that can detect that information that is available to you. So I mentioned that the mosquitoes have extraordinarily sensitive antennae, which we think allows them to do this wonderful task, this great capability they have. For us, it's going to depend on the sensors that we attach to any particular aircraft that we put on. With the walls, because the jet isn't going down, it's slightly less sensitive. Again, when you purchase one of these, as as I'm sure you will, (laughs) when you try to fly it close to a wall, what you'll notice is that it gets sucked into that wall. And if you fly near the ceiling, it gets sucked into the ceiling as well. So there are, again, these trade-offs with the dynamics of the vehicle that you need to be close enough to detect it, but still have a sufficiently agile quadcopter, maybe a racing drone, to be able to get away from it if you realize you're about to crash. To be of value within other applications, the sensors Richard and his colleagues developed must be able to detect potential obstacles early enough for vehicles containing them to avoid the possible collision. Richard talked with us about the current limitations of the technology, as well as other alternative implementations of it, even within those limitations. You must sense it in time to make an evasive maneuver. So at the moment, we are uh, limited, it is true, to very slow flights. But that's fine if you want to do an inspection of something, or if you get into a situation that you didn't know you were going to get into. So say you suddenly fly into fog, you could then go into a different mode, sort of cautious flight mode, where you're relying on your instruments more. At those slower speeds, you're more likely to get a better result from our sensor. But this is absolutely an ongoing area of our research, and it fits into a wider research program as well, where we're looking at other types of sensor too. In particular, we're looking at vision sensors as well, because we understand that they work at long range, and there are many situations where they work very well But there are situations where they don't work well. I've mentioned in the dark, but also the fly bouncing into the window. That's a really good example of where eyes are not giving you a very good data stream. (laughs) So the, the good thing about windows is that you can see through them. But the bad thing about windows is that they really mess up any sort of vision-based obstacle avoidance system. So if you can identify from your sensory input that you're in a room or that you've suddenly lost good information uh, from your vision sensors, you could then smartly switch to one of your other sensory modes and rely more heavily on that, even if it means changing your behavior a little bit, flying that bit slower. Many uses can be imagined for a collision avoidance system that doesn't rely on the generation of additional visual, auditory, or even electromagnetic signals. To wrap up our conversation, we asked Richard to discuss some that he and his team are currently working on. We see an array of applications for this technology. If we're to believe that uh, Amazon will be delivering our parcels in the near future, um, which is, I suppose, particularly relevant in in times such as these where we're trying to minimise human-to-human contact as much as possible, then we have this utopian or perhaps dystopian view that the skies will be filled with parcel-delivering quadcopters. And I don't want those to fly down (laughs) built-up areas and and crash into a high level of a skyscraper and then tumble down onto pedestrians below. So anything which can be used to reduce the likelihood of crashes, that definitely gets my vote. 
But this isn't just about parcel delivery. We know that drones are being used for so many different reasons at the moment, be that search and rescue, again, in very difficult terrain and indeed unmapped terrain, if it's after a landslide or if it's in a collapsed building. And these are places where certainly if you're indoors, it might be that GPS is not something you can use. And in fact, the maps that you had for there may not be relevant anymore anyway, and they might be dark. So you might be flying in situations where using camera-based collision avoidance devices, which is what you get on the best commercial quadcopters that you can buy. They have cameras all around them, but there are certain situations, in particular when it's dark, that they don't work very well. So we're adding a new tool to the suite of collision avoidance devices that could go onto onto these quadcopters. And they're being used for all that. They're being used for agricultural inspection. They're being used as platforms for sporting events. And again, if you're moving through wooded areas for that sporting event or something like that, you definitely don't want to be crashing into the trees or onto the athletes. If you're examining civil engineering, so we all know that bridges need to be inspected for cracks, maybe wind turbines in the future. What we need to do is get very, very close to them, but not crash into them. (laughs) Actually, Bioinspiration is a really good place to look for this as well, because not only do we think we've got a technique here where you can get close to, but not crash into surfaces, but also one of the key benefits of uh, the method that we're proposing in, in this paper is that it is very lightweight device. Anytime you take to the skies, If you add on any device for whatever reason, that increases the payload and it reduces the duration uh, of which you can fly or the payload that you can lift. Other techniques, be they laser range finding or these cameras, they're quite heavy and they take a lot of processing power. So they drain the battery and the lasers emit things or the ultrasonics have speakers in which are emitting these ultrasonic noises at all times. Ours doesn't require any emission at all other than the downwash, which the vehicle necessarily has to make because it has to obey the laws of physics. It has to do the equal and opposite reaction thing. It has to accelerate air downwards. And so if you can just monitor that uh, with a pressure sensor, which is virtually passive and requires almost no processing power for the flight controller, then there are significant advantages to be had by that. That was Richard Bomfrey discussing his article, Aerodynamic Imaging by Mosquitoes Inspires a Surface Detector for Autonomous Flying Vehicles, published on May 8, 2020, with multiple co-authors in the journal Science. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e78, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discuss during the episode. We often hear from listeners curious about how Doug and I put the show together. So we collected the most frequently asked questions and posted our answers at parsingscience.org slash FAQ. There you'll find our origin story and how to cite the episodes in your science writing. You can also learn who we have scheduled for upcoming episodes, how to have us ask a question of them on your behalf, what other shows we recommend, and more. Next time in episode 79 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Neil Garg from UCLA about his research into the fundamental chemistry necessary for the creation of a small electronic test of marijuana that works by way of a simple oxidation process similar to that used in an alcohol breathalyzer. The fundamental chemistry is actually really simple. You take THC, it's got this reactive part of the molecule called a phenol, use electricity to do an oxidation reaction, 
It gives a different product that's a different color. And it takes some amount of electricity in order to do that. And because of that, there's a lot of different ways you can think about developing like a sensor device. We hope that you'll join us again.